All right. It's Jeff Mayhew. It's John Beatty. It's Politics and Parenting, where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Jeff. You gotta excuse my voice. It's been a, a long week with sickness, and then I lost my temper today and uh, ruined some, made my voice even worse. So <laughs> I might do with my tea. Oh, man. Oh, man. You know, that's, it's always, you know, the end of the long, sick week, and then the kids, you know, they're probably bottled up, right? A little bit of, uh, you know, <laughs> energy needing to get released. A lot of watching TV at grandma's. Oh, man, that TV. Topped with, with no sleep and extra servings of pie. So, yes, dangerous combination. Do you do you find the behaviors different when they watch a lot of TV? I, I find it with my kids. Unbelievable, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It it's like they're literally watching other people and learning how to behave, but it's like it's from a uh, like a whole segment of society that's like entertainment is based off of division, right? So like mm -hmm. it's all geared the same way, and it's teaching them how to be behave divisively. <laughs> well, it's also there's that part, but there's also just that they don't. Uh, I mean, like the the boys don't get any energy out, so they're just constantly poking at each other. You know, they're causing division because they're trying to, to harass each other and they have so much energy to harass each other and to get back at each other. Yeah. And then they're throwing pillows across the room and yeah, that too about to knock over the freshly folded laundry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we got a pretty good topic for today, John, we're going to talk about currency and populism. Um, so that's been a kind of a theme lately on the pod. Um, we've kind of classified ourselves as like a populist movement, but I, I think we're trying to do it differently. Um, and then we've talked a lot about currency, just ideas, you know, uh, the, the whole market is kind of moving to this digital, uh, this digital type of currency, you know, our dollars not doing so hot, the economy's not doing so hot. Maybe we can, you know, move things in pro progress forward, uh, without, uh, you know, hurting ourselves too much, but, uh, you know, uh, John, you you mentioned the uh, currency. You wanted to talk about that first today. You've been reading up on digital currencies. Well, we talked a little bit about it last week, so um, towards the end of that big podcast. But the thing that that I was kind of thinking about um, this past week is, you know, if you have a dollar bill, there's there, there's one clause on it that's kind of key that sort of makes it all work, and it's um uh, uh, I don't have one in front of me, but it's like this. This bill is legal tender for all debts, public and private. And what that means is that the government, you know, if the, the way it really works is the government um, gives these dollars to you uh, or makes them available. And then they say, you owe us money and this is how you pay back the debts. And I, I'm thinking of like, you know, the, the greenbacks kind of is uh comes out of the centralization of money during the civil war, but there was a lot of different banks with their own paper notes and stuff. Um, but the key thing about the greenback was that it was, that's how they paid the union soldiers, if I recall correctly, yeah. you know, so you're giving out the, the United States government is giving these soldiers dollars and says, here's your uh, payment for service to our country. And then that kind of sets up an expectation that that dollar is going to be good for something. And so, you know, the government's expectation is if you have, you owe us taxes, you can pay for these, the, your taxes with these bills. Um, but then kind of having them in circulation, people start to accept them because they say, well, you know, I also owe taxes. So if I accept some dollars for my pig or my sheep or something, and then when I owe 
Uncle Sam his share, I can just give them the greenbacks and that's squared away. Um, and I think that's one of the the problems that we've seen with the digital currencies is that they're usually never, um, they're not as widely accepted. So it's harder to get. And then there's always this kind of speculative aspect of it. And then, um, like Bitcoin in particular, I remember when Bitcoin first kind of came out uh, and there was people that I would follow online and they talk about like, oh yeah, I, I spent the whole Bitcoin on a pizza. It was really cool. And if you know, pizza's like what 12 bucks um and that was, like that was the first transaction of a bitcoin was it was paid for with pizza if i'm not mistaken something like that yeah yeah and now that bitcoin's worth um well at some point it was in the you know uh five figures six figures sometimes um and, but it, it, there's so much volatility into that so you actually it isn't a, a really great way to pay for a pizza or something because it's it's not there's no um uh stability behind it like you don't you know if you get a bitcoin <clears throat> at one second you almost want to spend it as fast as possible so that it doesn't lose value or if you want to be speculative you might hold on to it thinking it'll go up in value but if it goes down in value now you've even you've lost even more so there's well, uh and that's kind of a it seems to be a problem with a lot of the digital currencies is, is because there isn't like a, a a basis behind it um and, and i mean like there's no basis behind a, a greenback but there's sort of the federal government saying that we'll take it but other than you know any of these digital currencies and stuff, the only basis is that there's a network that you can make a transaction on. There isn't really any value and people have a hard time value, valuing something that's nothing. Yeah. I mean, and that, and that's kind of the key with, you know, with a digital currency is like, it's going to have high volatility until something else is brought in, right? Some sort of like backing or whatnot. I mean, I think the interesting the interesting part of Bitcoin specifically is that idea of mining for something and having something tangible, right? Like it, it's not just, it's it's backed by Bitcoin. You like, you use a currency and Bitcoin is kind of like the gold realistically. Um, and I, so I think that, that that part of the digital currency is interesting because now if you create this kind of like similar Bitcoin system, I believe the, the guy that created Bitcoin like I think there's like a finite number of Bitcoin out there, right? They like reproduce well, they, they, the um, whatever, but, but they that yeah. Originally, there's a finite number, but the you can you know there's a there's it's a network, and so the network can make changes to the code. And if you get more than fifty percent of the network to agree to it, then that change takes hold. And so this is one of the interesting things with the network is people will fight about it, and they'll um, they'll actually be splits. So there's a number of derivatives of Bitcoin based on like certain rules and stuff. So. Um, the whole network will shift into two different and bifurcate and you'll have Bitcoin that work in one network and Bitcoin that work in another. And so I, I think that's a really interesting concept. And and so what I've been reading about lately is uh, so I've been reading this uh, McKinley, the triumph of William McKinley written by Karl Rove. So it's really like a deep dive into um how like mckinley fought through like the uh corruption in his own party and whatnot and like won the nomination um but it also tackles bimetallism and this is something that comes up a lot when you read history you know gilded age through the industrial age and this idea of bimetallism was you know we'd always use kind of silver but during this gilded age kind of boom, uh, gold had really become the standard. And, uh, you know, there were people in different states that used silver and wanted silver. They wanted to buy metallism. But the gold people, they didn't want it for two reasons. One, it devalued their gold. Two, mm -hmm. 
they struggled with getting other nations to agree to a ratio of gold to silver that was consistent. And so that would devalue their gold. So they wanted to keep gold a standard. The silver people wanted the uh, wanted more because, excuse me, gold was limited, right? So they wanted to expand the money supply. So what you had mm -hmm. in the Gilded Age is you had these big businesses and big finance that was created. And what that did is it siphoned a lot of gold out of the states into like New York, right? To where the financing was going. And then when the project was done, a lot of the profits went there too, and it wasn't in the state. And so now you have a limited supply of, of money, of currency. Um, and so- you know, you had this fight and the gold kind of won. And then you ended up with the same problem and you ended up in this fiat currency system, right? And now- Well, with this the gold eventually won because uh, they were able to stop the silver mining senators from uh, well, having their control. I mean, I'm still reading- Honestly, I'm, I'm still reading, like trying to figure out exactly like how did gold win this? Like I know gold won, but I'm not 100%. I'm still digging. I actually ordered a, a book on Williams, Jenny Bryan. I'm sure that there's uh, some good stuff in there about, about that. Um, and then I've got a Grover Cleveland here to read about it too. And I'm still going through my McKinley uh, book here. But uh, but yeah, I mean, so so gold won out. We ended up with the silver, or excuse me, the fiat currency system. And now you've got this system where the government kind of controls it. And it does like inflation, deflation, all this stuff. Um and it's because we needed a a bigger supply of money. But now I think sometimes the government oversupplies the market, and that's why we have depressions. If you have a like a system where the market kind of determines when you influx more into it, uh, based on like a 50 percent, right? I mean, it seems like an interesting concept for an economy, you know, to be able to continue to grow, but not grow too fast. So you're saying money outside of, of a government control, like I guess getting rid of the central bank and letting the market almost set the value of, of a central dollar or something, whatever. I mean, isn't that kind of how, I mean, I mean, I'm these just ideas, right? I'm just mm -hmm. thinking out loud. No, here. it's interesting because like the central bank, you know, like you talk, like they can just pump money in there, um, and then they decide that we need an extra trillion dollars. They just put a couple zeros in their credit uh, accounts, and then other banks have a couple zeros in their credit accounts, and then they're able to lend out based on that and expand the supply of money um, pretty trivially. Yeah. And I think I think what happens a lot of times, especially in our financial market, is the the you know they expand the money supply by you know basically giving money, giving taxes back to people or whatever. You know, um, it's that debt you're paying the government; they're giving it back to you, right? Um, and so, mm -hmm. but regular people, what they do essentially with that money is they they go buy something. We're a consumer economy. We've been shaped that way. So they're putting the money back into the corporation. And that money, money is then funneling back to New York and back to California because it's either, you know, it's either big finance, the corporation that's, you know, the money's in New York or it's entertainment or tech and the money's in California. Right. And so, and it's, it's leaving holes in the economy, holes in different types of states that don't have enough, you know, uh, industry there. And, uh, you know, I've, I kind of lost my track there. No, I mean, like, that's that's a good point. But that's the, that's the, I've always heard this argument about China too. Like China takes, oh. uh, you know, you buy a $20 pair of jeans from a Chinese manufacturer, you know, you're sending $20 to China, maybe, you know, there's margins and stuff like that. But the argument is that, well, well, that Chinese 
pant manufacturer is actually buying American cotton at like $5 a, a bale or something. So um, yes, you're sending some money to China, but that money kind of in a weird way reciprocates back to the United States because they're buying uh, American goods and use uh, raw materials to produce that. Um, and, you know, uh, you could say some of the, the farming, you know, and so now you've got American farmers that need to buy farming equipment. And so they, they uh, buy their American made farming equipment or something. Um, so the, I think there's a cycle to it. And you say that, like the money's going to New York, um, but New York still needs food. And so they're going to buy uh, beef and beef tends to be gra uh, grain fed or grain finished for the majority of it. And that grain comes from the Midwest. Um, so like it, you know, it's interconnected and well, well, it obviously, is. Yes. I, uh, there's a margin being made in New York and there's a margin being made in San Francisco, but there is kind of a whole fabric to the economy that uh, means that not everyone's missing out. Well, and so and, and it's not the fact that the structure is bad. I actually think the structure is quite good and I think it does a lot of good. It's it's really what helped us create these large, um, you know, basically communication devices. The railroad is a communication mm -hmm. device as far as I'm concerned. Radio, television, um, the Internet, the, you know. Big finance, really, without it, we don't have these things. And, and it brought so much good to the country. However, I just think that there comes a point where it gets too bloated, right? And maybe there, mm -hmm. maybe New York and California are taking a little bit too much off the top. And maybe you don't actually need to have entertainment from Calif California anymore because we have te technology that reaches everywhere. And realistically, you could create like you could you could have people shooting great movies in their hometown and you could have you can make a podcast right? in Virginia. You can make a podcast in Virginia, right? Like with a MacBook, <laughs> you know, and, and it comes, yes, that comes from California, right? But now you're able to use it to create something in your state and creates commerce and help that local economy fill the hole, patch the hole, because, you know, now, and that's, that's ideally what you want, right? You want people when the government sends the money is like, spend it in your local market, create more money with that money. You know, that's the old, uh, the old set, uh, saying is it takes money to make money, right? Well, when the government's mm -hmm. influxing it into the into the citizens, you know, do you really think all the citizens are going to think that way, or they're just going to go buy the brand new shiny thing? And now it just, you know, now you've over you oversupplied the market with money. Now you pull out, and you you've got an undersupply of but it's it's more products. yeah more dollars chasing fewer products. Right. Like and, the... and you jack the prices up and who pay who gets that money? The the back end corporation, right? <laughs> but you know. And it's well, but again, but but their incentive is then to produce. I mean, like if you if you truly well, maybe you could argue that it's not a free market, but if you truly think it's a free market, like there's signals then where that producer is now going to start trying to get more raw materials because they there is a margin they can take advantage of and they might try to produce something. And so they're going to start bidding up the cost of raw materials. Um, and that's going to affect uh, <clears throat> other people. Um, so, that, I mean, like, again, I, I would just say that there's a lot more of a cyclical nature to it. Um, whereas yes, the short term in the short term prices may go up, but in long term things start to even out and equalize where either other people try to undercut that margin or everything kind of gets more expensive as happen as happens with inflation and a large money supply. Yeah, but we I mean, people don't like inflation, right? Yeah. <laughs> it makes life That's difficult. For sure. <laughs> you know, but I mean, in 
in all reality, it is normal, right? Like as far as mm -hmm. economic depressions and stuff like that, it happens in the course of time. You know, we can get as angry as we want at the people in charge, but at the same time, kind of just happens, doesn't it? Booms and busts. Yeah. I mean, and like, and you, you know, you're talking about like mining, either if it's mining for Bitcoin or mining for silver or gold, like there, there seems to be a, a the money supply just increases over time um, because you're extracting more things out of the earth or doing more work in the case of Bitcoin. Um, so it does kind of tend to match uh, the population growth or the society's growth. Yeah. And, and that's important, you know, um, and because as society grows, the economy needs to grow with it because that's how people survive nowadays is through their job, right? We're an intercon interconnected society. We don't make or you know our own food. We buy it from a store. So we got to be able to produce money to be able to buy that from the store. So, yeah, that's why we we need people who uh, people in charge who care about people <laughs> and who think about these things. What did Carville used to say? It's the economy, stupid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, so what, what is the, what is the other thing we've been talking about a lot lately? The people, Vox Populi. It's what Elon Musk was saying, Vox Populi, Vox Day. The people, Elon Musk, he is, he is a populist leader, isn't he? Yes, he is. He wants but to be This is, this leader. is the point you like to say is it's, it's a populist leaders tend not to be thinking of the people. They tend to be thinking of themselves. Like Elon Musk really doesn't care too much about what people say on Twitter as long as they're on Twitter and he can sell advertising against it. Right. It's funny how that kind of works is that whole consumerism of populism. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that brings me to uh, Henry Ford. I just finished a biography on Ford. I wrote a little piece on it uh, on the sub stack. And man, was he not kind of a really terrible human being? Like, <laughs> in all Butthered. honesty, like, I, when I read biographies and I read a lot of stories, right? And I read about a lot of people who, you know, you would think are terrible human beings, but I always find s such a lot of great stories in there. And a lot of times the good kind of outweighs the bad of their story, but not with Henry Ford, man. Like he was just, you know, he was a bigot. He was a racist, but more than anything, and I know that's pretty bad already, but he just treated the people that he cared and loved about, loved the most like garbage. The way he treated his son just makes me sick. Um, I can't believe what he did to him. And yeah, it, it shows you, you know, people love that man. And they thought he was like a great person. And he had all these upstanding values. But in the reality is they only knew the version that was advertised. They didn't know the mm -hmm. real man. And that's the danger with following a populist leader. You know, they're not necessarily telling you the truth. They're telling the, you the truth you want to hear. And because it makes you feel good <laughs> and it solves your problem. Yeah. It puts a car uh, in your garage. <laughs> it puts a car in a garage. It's like Steve Jobs. It put the iPhone in one's pocket. Like he was, if you read his biography, he was truly awful to this um, daughter. He had a wedlock. He basically tried to deny her, deny paternity, ignore her. And I, um, at some point he, he uh, came around and named a computer after her. But for a long time, he was just kind of really bad to her. Um, and then there's lots of stories of where he will would yell at people. He'd fire you if he didn't like what you said, um, you know, and there was kind of a, a cult like populism around him with the people who work for him where he could get them to uh, do amazing things and build amazing products. But you always have to, you know, at, at what cost, at what cost? Right. And, and like what defines what a populist leader is? 
right? Like, I mean, what in your mind, what do you think of popular? Like, what what makes you a leader of the people? I mean, I think the the metaphor, the image that comes in my mind is just a guy with a lot of people, and he's given a speech, and they're all cheering and uh, excited about it, and he's able to get them to do things that he wants because they think that what they're doing is actually good for them. Um, have you, uh, so I, th- I think I sent this on our group thread, but I might not have, I tweeted about it earlier today, but, uh, one of my favorite movies of all time is Casablanca. And you know, the scene when, uh, the French guy shows up the, the woman's, uh, you know, uh, fiance that, uh, Humphrey Bogart doesn't know about yet. He shows up and he's wanted by the Germans and whatnot. And the Germans are singing their like song in Casablanca. And he walks up to the band and he tells them to play Viva La France. And he starts singing it. And all of a sudden, person by person in there, because there's only like seven Germans and everybody else is French for the most part. And person Mm -hmm. by person starts singing Viva La France. And before you know it, the Germans are drowned out, right? That's a populist leader. He knew what the people wanted to do, but they were too scared. He had the courage to stand up and say the thing that they were scared about. And now those people will follow him. Now those people have given him trust and whatnot. Now, the problem with most populist leaders is they abuse it. <laughs> it goes to their head, right? And or mm-hmm. maybe they weren't prepared for leadership. Like somebody like Ford, realistically, he just was a stummered, uneducated person for the most part. And he the only way he kept himself successful was by wielding p- people against each other and wielding power for himself. Um, and that's, you know, y- you don't want that in a, a government official, right? Because that's what, how you end up with a monarch. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or a tyrant. Or... A tyrant, right. I mean, I described that's kind of what working for Ford sounded like to me when I was reading his biography. He, like he was a tyrant. Um. Yeah, I, I think, you know, and I read through your piece and, you know, it talks about him just going off to a machine shop at 16 uh, and basically working his way up. Um, and you you kind of wonder, like, how do people toe the line almost in, uh, in these efforts? And I think it's because you are able to, um, you know, you've got people behind you that, like, like you said, that trust you. Uh, and then you kind of wield those people that trust you and wield them as a cudgel against people who who you don't have their, their ear and you kind of put fear into them and um you uh don't le- lead through love or through affection you lead through uh fear intimidation um and that's that's a kind of a a, a machiavellian um sense where uh, in, the, in the prince it's like it's the in machiavelli's prince it's, it's like it's better to be feared than to be loved um, which is so kind of antithetical to like the more Roman tradition of, of you know, being um, one of the people and uh, being a, a virtuous person that people follow and can trust. Uh, whereas you, uh, when you're a tyrant, you tend to uh, manipulate and deceive and tell little half-truths and stuff in order to get people to do the things that you don't want to do, but, you know, will keep you around. Well, and I think, so I think, uh, I think Ford derived a lot of his power from just, he was just smarter than a lot of people when it came to machines, right? Like he was, he was a highly intelligent person. Um, He, he basically, he was a really big fan of the McGuffey readers, which was like a, a textbook back then that kids learned off of. But as far as like deeper education and deeper understanding of history, for the most part, he didn't want to take the time to read it. 
there's a lot to go through, as you and I both know, and it's hard mm -hmm. to understand it unless you read read it all, right? And so right. he got his version, and he, you know, and he wasn't the type of person that liked to be challenged. You know, he was a stubborn, I'm the I'm the hero type of guy, and so I think that he was able to wield his power because he, you know, he he had the specialized talent that nobody else had and they needed him. And he used that against people, you know, and for his own, you know, fortune for, realistically and his own success. Um, now, did he help people along the way? Absolutely. Right. Br bringing the, uh, the ideas that he, he came about with um, helped bring down, drive down the prices, you know, there was a good portion of time where Ford was a great company to work for. Um, and I'm not saying that they're not anymore, right? It's a different company at this point, but mm -hmm. there was a, there was some times where you couldn't believe that people would want to work there. Um, and, you know, he just, I don't know. He just wasn't a great guy, <laughs> but sorry. It happens. It happens. It happens. You know, I mean, oof. Ford guy. No, I mean, like that's the problem with, uh, I, you could, point to some of our uh, current populist leaders and say like they're the they have people's trust um but they seem to be abusing that trust for their own personal purposes whether that's uh raising a lot of money for a political action committee and trying to uh, further their goals and political aspirations at the expense of others but you know you could say it's probably not for the people that uh that are following them although i mean like that's a that's a big thing like people want to feel special and i think populists tend to capture that element of you know you stick around with me and i'll make you feel special and i'll make you feel different um and that's something that people tend to appreciate so if you don't have that from if you don't have that kind of um feeling of uh, belonging um i think that's what populist leaders tend to yeah. capitalize on because because uh and i think you saw that with um like if you look at trump like there's the people who were alienated, um, tended to follow him, and people who had strong communities uh, tended to kind of repel him because they could see all the other problems with him, and they didn't need that sense of belonging, which was kind of what he was able to offer. Well, and I, I wouldn't say, like, it's not that strong communities, you know, pushed him off. I mean, some strong communities were brought into it as well, right? Like, they were a tight-knit community that felt left out, you know? Mm -hmm. um, like I said, Populist leaders are somebody who comes around and says the thing that nobody else will, right? And then they're able to pull people together, all different types of people who think all different types of way, and they're able to gain power from that. It's what they do with the power that it that matters. And so, like, it is, it's my biggest thing is, as Americans, we keep on electing populist presidents. And that's just a mistake and a misunderstanding of doing our job as citizens and voting. A populist president is going to move power to the executive because when the executive mm -hmm. uses power, it kind of it has to use its power. And if it has to drag power from anywhere to get something done, it's adding to its power. That's not a good thing. Right. Because our power, the people's power is derived from the house. If we want a populist leader, we should kind of want that populist leader to be in the house, right? Maybe mm -hmm. not speaker of the house, but just somewhere in the house fighting for power for the people to make decisions on their own lives the in the system that was originally created you know a leader of a faction inside that a leader of a faction way. in a right and look there are factions you know you've seen the 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 tea party faction the freedom caucus the squad right but like they're focused on such like 
kind of, they're not focused on moving power back to people, right? They're focused on their special interest ideas, right? I mean, I know the mm-hmm. Freedom Caucus, you know, limited government, that's great. But how do you keep the government under control by allowing the people to have a say, uncap the house? Mm-hmm. How is this like, it's such a basic idea. You know, if you were the Freedom Caucus and you're for limited government, like this should be like the simplest thing that that you go forward. But again, I find that these things are more about power and keeping their power and and expanding out and, you know, power to other people doesn't tend to, they don't tend to like that. Well, I mean, one, I guess one final point is if you can bring it all back to Washington, like that was why he was so amazing was because he gave up the Continental Army's generalship and he went back to his, his home in Mount Vernon. And then when his country wanted him one more time for the presidency, he gave it two terms and then he said, I'm done. And he walked away. Like, you know, you could imagine so many people were willing to to coronate him after they won the we won the revolution. And so many people wanted him to run for another th- another term. And he was willing to enable to say, no, I'm done. And I'm ready to hand on the reins to the next person for the system, not for me. Well, and I think that's the perfect, like, idea of what limited government is supposed to be, right? Limited government is not necessarily to say that the government can or can't do certain things. I think that that realistically changes kind of with society. And I know that that may be an unpopular idea, but I think that's just the the reality of the situation. Um, And our government, our structure allows that to happen. Um, I think limited government is more about power, right? It's limiting power limiting the ability of corporations to grow, limiting their power, limiting the ability of people in power with term limits is important, right? Leaders should be generated. It's about the appropriateness too. I mean, like um, you could say like the constitution had never had the idea of a, of a nuclear arsenal. Right. And it's, uh, but, and, but it really, it makes sense for that to be in the hands of, of very few people so that there's less likely that it might go wrong. Right. Um, people that you trust. And so like, our, you know, we, we kind of have built that into the system, but um, when it comes to making individual choices of, you know, where I'm going to, how I'm going to teach my kids and where we're going to live and stuff like, you know, that's definitely on, on an appropriateness is in our own individual um, capacity, not at someone at the top trying to, to dictate what's going down. Well, and and then and then again, I think you know brings back to like the limited part and changing power at the house level, right? And changing the leadership, making sure the house has the appropriate amount of power so they can they can wield for the people, and then changing that leadership frequently. Um, and you know, giving them some time to get things done, but being able to change it out, you know, like I, I propose every twelve years, realistically. Um, and that's important because what you get is you get regular people's voice again, you know, as opposed to, Mm -hmm. you know, one generation's voice, the generation that has maybe the time or ability to volunteer and do all these things because they don't have families. Maybe they're retired. Maybe they have money to fundraise and donate, but they basically are able to like capitalize on that um, and get their voice heard a little bit better. Um, So, I mean, I don't know, just, just ideas about, you know, whatever randomness. (laughs) So John, how was your uh, how, how was your uh, parenting week? Uh, it was pretty good until I, mean, I was sick for a lot of it. So yeah, uh, it was not in symbol, but uh, as we were talking about, kids were acting up today, and I just kind of lost my temper with them. And so um, it's never never feels good after that. But 
you kind of have to think about like what got you in that situation and uh you know being able to tone it down walk it back um and try to not let it happen again but yeah you know i think it happened it happens a lot it happens to everyone unfortunately oh it happens to me i'm i'm a i'm a yeller right you know i mean it's not that i yell it's just that i speak very sternly it's kind of like if you ever if you ever catch me in public having a conversation and you get me on to uncapping the house like that is me in front of my kids just a little bit louder sometimes when they frustrate me <laughs> like well, it's just very focused stern. <laughs> after the fact my wife was reading something and she it was very helpful because it talked about how you know when you see someone else's kid misbehave like you know you just you kind of let it slide but when you, your kids misbehave you love them so much that that's where your passions get in and you want to like help them and fix them. And yeah, so um, it, it comes out of a place of love. It's just not the, uh, not the appropriate response. I think. Yeah. I, I, not the I, I actually, uh, when I wrote my poetry show, my, the poem I wrote for my twin daughters is uh, I am dad, hear me roar. And I got this t-shirt mm-hmm. made with a T-Rex and it's wearing sunglasses like daddy with a flannel on like daddy. And, you know, the point of that was to tell my girls I'm going to be scary sometimes, but it's because I love you and I'm trying to protect you, you know? Um, and, you know, we make mistakes as fathers. Sometimes we lose our temper. We yell at our kids. Um, we just do our best to reflect and teach realistically. You know, that's that's the best we can do. You know, you got to move forward. You can't go back. Um, that's lots of cliches there, but, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of truth in cliches. That's why they're yes. cliches. I mean, that is, that's definitely... For sure. Um, so I had an interesting parenting week. I started a new project with Oliver. I actually wrote oh, about cool. it in our Substack as well. Um, so Oliver's going to be 13 in, in, uh, in January. And, you know, the most important thing you can do as a father, as I think, is like to be able to communicate. And it's really difficult, I find, to communicate with a teenage boy because they are so animalistic right? They're focused on kind of one thing at that age, right? <laughs> they mm-hmm. can't control it. It's it's out of their hands. You know, it won't go away. Um, they need to be busy, but they compete like crazy. They realistically mm-hmm. need to slow down. Um, and they don't want to talk about their feelings, you know? <laughs> so I thought it would be a good idea to try to, to do a project with Oliver to, to get us communicating better. Um, I find that if we're able to communicate, I'll be able to help him where he needs help. And, you know, he'll be able to tell me things that I'll be able to like help him before, you know, (laughs) things go south. Um, So we started, we're building a NASA uh, five Saturn rocket or the Saturn five rocket um, from the Lego set. And it's really interesting because I, I don't really do Legos. I always wanted to do them as a kid, but uh, my parents didn't get them. They were expensive. Plus, you know, when they did get them, I probably was a little young and kind of beat them up or whatnot. But Oliver's- Well, the sets are much cooler now than when we were kids. Well, that's true. That's true. Um, But I thought they were awesome when I was a kid. But uh, Mm -hmm. uh, he's like a Lego Lego expert. He's been doing Lego since he was really young. It's always been something that we've, we've bought. There was even a period of time where I was like, no more Legos. Like we just, we can't, it's too much. Um- and so it was interesting. He took the lead and kind of showed me how to get things done um, in the first uh, couple bags. By bag three and four, I can f- 
we were competing with each other. Like just natural men in a small arena are now competing with each other. I had to tell myself like, slow down, you know, he's a kid, right? Like this is supposed to be talking time, not like who finishes first. And I could watch him and I'm watching him trying to beat me and race and race and race. And he, he beat me, but we compared our four pieces together and his two pieces were, uh, they had a little mistake and I was like, yeah, it's all right. You got to slow down. You know, you got to <laughs> take your time and check your math. Well. Right? <laughs> but, no, that's great. I mean, like I, I've heard that um, with sons, I, you know, as you said, sometimes they don't want to communicate. Like the best thing you can do as a father is just be around so that when they do communicate, you're there to actually listen to them and then just accept that they're going to talk to you at inopportune times. And you just have to, you know, you do have to kind of stop everything else and try to make do with that. And, um, and I think, you know, it sounds like it's a great opportunity for you two to be together and, um, you know, you be around for when he's got questions. Well, and, and, you know, that's what I told him. So like the, the, um, we did, we did bag number five last night. And so I'll actually let him read the article that I wrote and I just explained to him, like, look, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. You know, I'm just I'm just trying to be here for you. This is this is trying to create an environment where you feel comfortable to tell me things that are really uncomfortable. And I understand that there are a lot of things that you're going to have questions on that are really uncomfortable. And trust me, they're going to be uncomfortable for me. So this is like a team project here. You know, we're helping each other out. Uh, but that's what we're here for. You know, that's what I'm here for. I'm your dad. I'm supposed to be here to guide you. And I'm here to guide you in anything that you have questions on, you know, because if you go out and you ask other people, you don't necessarily know if you're getting, you know, the right information and you want to make sure that you're well prepared and have good information in life. So, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, and he, he's a smart kid and he, you know, he's, he's learning, you know, he's, he's kind of getting into it, but, uh, it's fun. I learned some good things, some nice things about, uh, stuff going on at school. It was enjoyable for me. So I had a good time. That's good. Yeah. And you got a sub stack out of it. So. Oh, that's right. I got a subset. Well, and I got the rest of it too, because I'm going to do, uh, do two more to finish it out. So he was like, are you going to write more dad? And I was like, yeah, I'll write some more. He likes, you know, he likes to be included, you know, in what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. So. No, my, my son's got into door knocking, uh, at some point. They like that. So, you know, and you know, we got to get like, competitive and they, they just, you give them a couple of pieces of literature and just say, here's a doors hit. And then, uh, and people love seeing cute kids. Oh yeah, big time. Yeah. Use that competitive grown middle-aged men. <laughs> no, nobody wants to see us knocking on their doors, but you might. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. Well, that was a good episode, John. I enjoyed talking about currency and uh populism and populist, crazy populist leaders sometimes. But <laughs> we'll just we'll follow the current next week and see what comes. It takes us. Yeah. So, you know what we didn't talk about at all is how was your Thanksgiving, John? I was in bed. I missed it. Oh, it was the right. weirdest thing ever. You missed Thanksgiving. Oh, man. But I did I did make up for it by making a pie on yesterday and today. So, okay. a pumpkin pie and apple pie. So, I think all squared away. Ready for next year. How was yours? Mine was good. We had a lot of people over at my house because my wife loves to host Thanksgiving dinner because it's her favorite meal of the year. Um, Excellent. 
Craig actually came uh, from our Madisonian group and we had a really good talk with my grandmother because my grandmother is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to history because she lived it and it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, my wife made my great grandmother house's meatballs and this delicious mac and cheese. And I ate that because I'm not a big turkey fan. <laughs> so Turkey's interesting. Turkey's hit or miss. That's uh... yeah. But I, I actually I did make croissants, and so I've been having turkey pesto croissants sandwiches, which are phenomenal, if I may say. So. Pesto, that's mm -hmm. you're you're fancy out there, out there in Loudoun County. You guys are fancy with the pesto. We're very fancy. But this is actually it's a recipe that they had at um, one of the dining halls at Virginia Tech, which is very fancy. Uh, they had like, <laughs> this like chicken pesto pesto chicken salad on a croissant that was a, a favorite of mine. So I was I'm just it's an homage. All right. Well, we're going to leave it at that uh, with John's pesto turkey sandwich. Um, if you like the show, please subscribe. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast. You can subscribe to the Substack. Um, if you are interested in Madisonian Republican events, find us on Facebook, shoot us an email. And if you like this episode, Share it on social media. You know, give us a shout out. Do something. I don't know. Help us out. <laughs> or not. You know, just listen. We'll be we'll be indebted. That's we'll right. Indebted. Yeah, we'll give you a debt of of currency that <laughs> that you can pay us back with. <laughs> Madisonian Republican tokens. <laughs> yeah, a digital Madisonian coin. All right. Peace and love.